I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. The way we develop software is constantly changing. Throughout the decades, we see different processes and practices emerge in how we write software. Laura Butler, vice president and technical fellow at Microsoft, talked about her time working on Windows 95 and what it was like to write software in the 90s. We talked about debugging, performance, and becoming a better programmer. Laura also talked about leadership and building strong teams. I'm here at Microsoft with Laura Butler, Vice President and Technical Fellow at Microsoft. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to see you. I met you more than a year ago, and we were just commenting on it feels like forever. Yeah. A year in the tech industry is like a dog year, seven yeah. years. Yeah, I'm happy to see you as well. I want to start with a way that you describe yourself as an accidental techie. Why is that? Well, it definitely was not my master plan. I was going to be an astronaut, science fiction writer, maybe international spy, mathematician, doctor. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And I failed an exam or a test you had to pass at Harvard to check your email. So we're not talking like super sophisticated. And the only path through to meet that requirement was to take a programming class. Oh, God, I hated it the first half. And then it just all clicked. But it was not my plan. I ended up at Microsoft as an intern in May of 1989. Also not my plan. I was desperate and I needed to eat <laughs> and make money to pay for school. And I, I like to talk about that a lot because, and yet I've been successful. You know, I'm not the most amazing person on the planet, but I'm kind of good at this stuff. So if you take the corollary, think about all of the people on the planet who don't have access to computer science or to tools or try it and get kind of bounced out for some reason and think about how great those other 7 billion people might be at this field or what they could do with these tools. So that helps me keep it a little bit real and humble, but also it makes me think about all the other people on the planet and empowerment. Yes, that actually really resonates with me. I'm participating in this campaign to get more Latino kids interested in technology, but I also understand they might not have computers in their school or no support from their family. So they're like, how am I even going to have a job in the tech industry? So what I tell them is, well, now you know this exists and you know about it as long as you keep it on the side that you have an interest. Whenever you come across a computer, you might want to give it a chance because you're already familiar with this. Yeah, well, I think we also talk about this stuff wrong. I got to, got, was very fortunate. I don't know if you know Elizabeth, who's an amazing recruiter, and she's based out of Mexico City. I got to go to Guadalajara and to Iteso and speak. And I decided I wanted to talk about freedom because it was also Mexican Independence Day. And I hope it resonated. I think sometimes we just, we bore and scare people out of this business. And when you really talk about these are tools that give you freedom, they give you the ability to turn your ideas into things. And you don't have to major in computer science. I mean, there are lots of ways to get started. So that's definitely on my mind. Another one, a great engineer on my team, Nkubando Koeda, has been talking about gig work. So he's from the Central African Republic. And so you think about kids going to school and poor families and who need to make money. If you could make children earn money through projects as they're building their portfolio, so it actually pays to go to school, wouldn't that be interesting? So we'll see if we can kind of make this idea go. Exactly. 
And just to expand a little bit more on that, I also sometimes feel there are a lot of initiatives to target and get people, children interested, but they might also be counterproductive because if the workshops are not interested or if you're telling them we're going to develop this game, they might be like, oh, this is just so boring. And like you said, more actionable advice, like you can create a website and maybe that starts making money and then pay for school, sort of seeing it as a tool for freedom. I really like that reflection. Yeah, and something personal. Yeah. yeah, you know, I always like to kind of take a step back. So when I, you know, I always think about algorithms in all aspects of life. It's not just a computer science thing. We talk about funnels and product, right? What are all the places at which people get selected out, you know? And I think this is a funnel problem too. You know, you have to kind of take it holistically, like even just for anybody to know it's an option. And then what are the hurdles? for them even to try it? And then what are the hurdles for them to stick with it? And like you say, a lot of little programs and just like lots of little features don't really make the funnel, you know, go from beginning to end. Exactly. Earlier you mentioned you started at Microsoft as an intern. When I was researching for this, I saw you worked on Windows 95. Back then, what was it like developing software? (laughs) It was really different and really similar. It was a much younger company. It felt very collegial. I mean, I actually did live in building, it's building five. We're at building six. We are. And both these buildings are part of the grand campus remodel. So they're going to get dynamited. I slept in my office. I mean, we had lots of free food. I think I ended up with 30 pairs of like gap khakis and t-shirts because they started to deliver and we're just, we were so focused. Um, that said, I think anyone who went through Windows 95 now would be like, ah, oh, it was the most amazing experience ever. I mean, when we had our launch party at midnight, there were people lined up outside of a computer store to get us to sign the boxes. Can you imagine? Right. And I mean, I think we knew it was going to be helpful and good, but we didn't know it was going to be great. But from now, we all say, oh, yeah, it was obvious. I mean, there were also terrible periods. I think it came to a point, maybe it was December, fall of 1994. So at this point, we're like two, three years in on this thing. You know, people get tired and you lose perspective. And our vice president, fabulous man, Brad Silverberg, said, why are you guys not running this thing on your own computers? And the engineer's like, you can't be serious, right? Like, God, it crashes all the time. We need to write code. And the program manager's like, you can't be serious. I'll lose all my email. And Brad's like, "Uh uh-huh. How do we send this out to customers if we aren't confident in it? in it ourselves. And that just is the thing that catalyzed it. And then we sent a beta out to a million people. I think we, it was Chicago. That's what we called it. Stamped on CDs, DVDs. And we were so unprepared for the bugs coming in. I mean, there were like two and a half people and we started getting like a thousand bugs a day. And when you're in bug fix mode and it's just constant, you know, you're just running really fast on a treadmill to keep up. You just don't No. But yeah, it was amazing. I mean, we were all also clear that there was a mission and a purpose about this. Might sound funny now, right? A PC on every desktop, but there was a lot of like social justice empowerment and it was in my mind and it was in certainly in the mind of minds of people I worked with that this was about giving more access to more computing power to more people. You did not have to be a programmer, right? Write some DOS commands and batch files to be productive and also to harness, you know, the the computing power in this device. You know, what you see is what you get. Get it out of the, you know, hands of the evil overlords of the mainframes. So I think that purpose was also really important. And also making it economically accessible, right, to more people. You didn't need to have a lot of money and be a big corporation to leverage this 
tools. Yeah, that said, I mean, I had, I think there's a photo from an article or an ad at the time I'm in, and I'm holding, this was like the top-end laptop of the time. It was a compact device. In fact, you can even see the Microsoft asset tag on it, because this could not be, I mean, this was like the nuclear football. Like, it could not be let out of my hands. has a little handle on it, because it weighed so much. It was like its own briefcase. 1024 by 768 screen resolution. It had 256 meg of memory. Oh my God. And I think it had, oh, maybe like, might have had a gig of, I mean, it was like an incredible machine. Oh, and it had a functioning GPU, or sorry, floating point processor. So this was like, this thing was probably like $10,000, but this was an amazing accomplishment for the time. It was still much less than what it used to be, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. During your time working on Windows 95 and in the early days of Microsoft, were there aspects of how software was developed then that you think were crucial to get Microsoft to become a global force in terms of how you worked as an engineer? Definitely. I mean, Microsoft, first of all, has always had a phenomenal recruiting organization, right? And the internship program. And I think that, I mean, we almost invented that, right? And it's just an incredible operation. All of the people from all around the world who come here to work. So how do you make a global product? Well, you have a global team. Localization and internationalization have also been very, very strong. Lots of effort spent on things like how is this UI work right to left or bi-directional or mixed languages? How do we translate it? How do we make sure that iconography works? Like one example in Windows 95 is the light source is top left, right? It's light on the left edges and the top edges of the bevel. We used to discuss, is that the right thing for people that read from the right? Should that be in the top right? Anyway, so those were just, it was front and center in our minds. Um, I'd say there were other things that got in the way. And also we had to be lean and mean. So I know I'm going to sound old, you know, like grandpa, like that guy from Up. But I'll tell you what, when you write assembly code, and there was a lot of it in Windows 95 even for efficiency sake and for compatibility reasons, and also to intermix 16-bit code and 32-bit code, you really think long and hard about it, right? It really kind of forces a deep understanding of how like flow through the system works. If you can't debug, you could have never helped make Windows 95 successful. I think that, and also we were clear also that the customers were not just end users. I mean, the route to the end users was through devices and there were was a wide variety of them. And yet that's nothing compared to today, right? So really great partnerships with the OEMs, with the computer manufacturers, with the part manufacturers, with Intel. And you can see, you know, we still partner like that. There were some other things that maybe weren't so good or it depends. Like I'm an introvert. I need time to myself. This open space thing is hard for me. You know, I'm having a bad day and I'm the leader of a group. Where do I, what do I do? I mean, that was really an era still, it's called like lonely cowboy. You know, it's like you could sit in your office and like you'd type all night with focus and, you know, not a lot of meetings. Not so collaborative though. I mean, so I think software today, I mean, it's just, it begins like it's just collaborative from the very beginning. And also that part of your job as a programmer is communication. In my era, you communicated by putting comments in the source code and maybe some very terse lines like this sucks in a bug report or fixed. Right. And I think the world is a better place for more collaboration and software. Right. Yes, definitely. In terms of witnessing the growth of the company, what were some things that had to happen in order to keep developing software at a much bigger scale? Well, there's what probably should have happened and there's what actually happened. Okay. And it's all from my point of view. I mean, it's all reasonable, right? Hey, we were the young Turks, like the counterculture. We were getting computing power out of the hands of the old middle-aged guys that wore, you know, pocket protectors and ties and suits. The suits, the man. But I think we confused 
organization and bureaucracy. And we also really forgot that people are the center of programming. They're not on the side. They're not this other messy domain that you just tolerate. And so somehow, because of that, those two things, we didn't really think about our algorithm for scale. I mean, if it was a code problem and you proposed an unsorted linked list for a large number, that would not go well. But somehow that was okay in like company structure. And we just grew so fast. You know, went from like, I don't know, 10, 20,000 people like, to like 50,000 people in what felt like a year or two. And on the one hand, I mean, growth, it's wonderful. It gives opportunity for everybody. You think you're a genius, right? I mean, look at Amazon, right? You know, hey, you just have cash coming in. The problem is when that growth curve slows down or the size kind of catches up with you. And I think that's what happened in the late 90s. Since we had no plan to be organized, we ended up like exploding in size. And then that's where bureaucracy starts to set in because every team's like, well, I need to hire, have a couple people whose full-time job is figuring out what the other people in the company are doing and so on. So it was almost like a classic kind of like N factorial or N squared algorithm where N got large enough and then boom. And you can't perf tune bubble sort, you know, past a certain point, right? You have to change your organization and sorting mechanism. Yes. And during this time in the early days, you were pretty much learning your craft. You dropped out of school. You were programming in assembly, among other things. What are some of the things that helped you become a better programmer? Well, obviously, just participating in code reviews, right? You know, holding them and design reviews. Because they really, first of all, they force you to explain stuff. You know, the problem with programming isn't the programming. Like, I, I've heard this, oh, if only I could get my intentions captured automatically, like, it'd be great. The problem is intentions are wrong. Or, you know, they get complex very fast. Or people aren't even clear on what they're trying to do and why sometimes. And you, you're very impulsive, especially when, you know, there's lots of bugs and the schedule is tight, right? So I think that getting back to the what are we really problem are we really trying to solve? It is this the best pragmatic solution? You know, perfection isn't possible because there's time. And I think the also the teaching aspect of it and then participate learning. Hey, hearing how other people think about problem solving and how they go about it. The other one, I honestly debugging like Windows 95. I don't I've never been like the best coder in the sense of like, I'm just gonna I can type fast. But like, I wouldn't look at the code I wrote and go, wow, this should be in like a computer museum. In fact, some of it you know, like the font picker dialogue probably should not be around. Let's just go walk through all the fonts in the system and put them in a big list box and render them. And that was great when there were like two. And it's not so great when there's like 10,000, right? Exactly. With like 19 different, you know, uh, permutations of typeface. Debugging was something I thought I was excellent at. And I was like, mysteries have always been interesting to me, like Sherlock Holmes. So I think the great thing about bugs and why we give them to new hires a lot is they're so concrete. You actually want your program to crash, right? Actually, you'd rather have it not build when there's a problem, like prevention. But if something does go wrong, you want it to crash. Like the worst, hardest bugs and problems to find are the ones that you're not even sure a problem happened or you can't catch it. But then that really gives you a lens into how the whole system works. So I think that, and I just got very, had to get very, very good at debugging. Like Raymond Chen, me, Jeff Bogdan. Raymond Endress, who's not at Microsoft anymore, who was like GDI in Windows 95. Because so many issues were coming in but then you also start to see patterns of like, okay, we keep seeing this divide by zero error. What's going on? Oh, nobody's actually using the system metric for the window border. They're all using the number one and they're ending up with a negative, you know, like a zero size like client area. Um, so that's like, oh, so then you start to get empathy. Like you end up putting yourself in the head of like, what is it like to be a developer trying to use Microsoft stuff or a user, right? An end user, like, hey, my mouse isn't working. Oh, the person's holding the mouse in the air. Thinking like, you know, like they're making the sign of the cross with the mouse, right? So empathy, oddly enough, 
and then getting at higher level what is you know really going on. Yes, that's very important because it's actually what I experienced coming on as a full time. There was a period of working on bugs and debugging, and I learned a lot, and I understand the reason why it's needed. Sometimes I talk to people early in their career, and they're like, all I do is fix bugs. And they say, like, when am I going to get a feature? And it's hard for them sometimes to understand. To some people, it might not sound shiny or anything, but that doesn't even matter. It's really valuable if you really want to have empathy, like you said, and make improvements to the product. Well, and also the best feature is the thing working, right? Yeah, you know, we talk about this a lot in my team. And we, at every all hands and every opportunity, we really emphasize it. Our priorities are in order and have always been and always will be team, quality, engagement, more users, and then business, right? If you don't have a quality product, and then we always talk about quality, if it's not reliable, who's going to make it use it a lot? And you'll never know if it's a worthwhile feature anyway, if it crashes all the time or users can't even get to it. And we say engagement over new users, not because growth of new users isn't important too, but when you're trying new stuff out, it's very hard to try new stuff out on customers you don't have. Yeah, exactly. Right? And you don't get the right to go get new customers if you are losing the ones already in your system. But really that sense of it's about the metric that moves. It's about the impact to the customer. And the shiniest, shiniest things can be like, no one noticed a problem. Like, it just worked, right? Hey, I, was, I, I didn't lose part of my brain digitized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, that said, balance is always good. Because I think people work on bugs sometimes for a while, like, oh, the grass is greener. And then when you're in feature development mode, the you know, people are like, oh, it's awful. But fixing bugs is so easy. I've got to, like, have a debate with design. And then the end users we tested it on hated it. They don't see my genius, you know. Yeah. So actually balanced diet is best. Yes, definitely. You've been at Microsoft for a while. That's a nice way of saying I'm old. Yep. <laughs> You've moved around through various teams, what I wanted to ask you is, what are some of the reasons when you look at moving to another team? Well, I think it first starts about like, why do you leave the thing you're already on? And as you advance in your career, like at least something I've come to realize, and I want to say this because I think younger people earlier in career don't quite understand it, the level to which your job is to make your job the job you want. And you have more freedom to kind of make the environment better and to shape it than you realize. Now, like breaking in jeans, you can even turn jeans into like a jean skirt, right? And some arm warmers. You can't, now there are limits to it. And sometimes it past a point, it becomes selfish and not what the group needs. So first, when I want to make a change, I'm kind of like, ah, like, am I getting twitchy? Am I frustrated? Is it that I've lost sense of purpose? Or is it I'm bored? Or orgs, personnel changes happen and strategy changes happen. You know, like you really like the group you're with and it's really cool and it's fun. And we are, this is the technology industry. Disruption happens, right? So then you have to react. So I start with, well, first of all, what can I change about my current job, right? To make it the job I want. If that turns out not to be doable, well, um, first of all, I just can't work on theoretical problems. Like brain exercises, I do that to relax, like crossword puzzles and Sudoku and, but I can't work on that thing. I cannot be a part of a group that's doing something that does not matter to me, that I don't use. I can't reason about it. I, and I also think history has a long track record of, you know, when it's you're making rules for them and then there's rules for you, like the world, you know, suffers, right? So it's really important to me to work on something that I myself use and care about and that also has a bigger purpose to it. So, you know, and I also culture. And then what, what thing can I bring? Like, why would they want me? It has to be something unique, right? Especially at my level. I mean, like I cost Microsoft a lot of money. 
And yes, I'm worth it, <laughs> mostly. So I have to like contribute, right? If I join a group and I suck, that's five people probably who could have been hired or someone else who was ready for uh, the next step up who got didn't get that opportunity, right? So I think about that a lot. I also love what I want to say is like hidden value, like where I look at it and I'm like, this thing is like the world's, this is like, yeah, maybe it looks like it needs a fresh coat of paint, but it's sitting on a block of Manhattan property. Like this thing is huge or could be amazing and people are just not seeing it right. So those are the factors. So in this last job search after, you know, Windows Fundamentals, once Windows kind of got to 500 million, Windows 10, I started to get twitchy because like the rocket blast off period is over. Now it's kind of flying through space. Through the cloud. Yeah. And I get bored. And I started in Windows and I kind of feel like, okay, I have closure with Windows now. It's always, always be near and dear to my heart. But empowerment is even nearer and dearer to my heart and freedom and opportunity. So I looked around and I'm like, I think the like Xbox is amazing. They have great culture, but I'm not a gamer. I'm just not. And OneNote was was obviously it. Like it was just so obvious. So then I just had to spend, that was one month in, like three, four months pretty much hanging out in the building, refusing to leave, you know, begging them to adopt me and then shaping like, okay, what am I going to do and how is this going to be good and try to earn some trust with the people I'd be working with before I showed up. How do you start earning trust before you work with them? Oh, wow. Um, well, that's actually just a good question in general, right? You know, when we talk about networking, I cringe. It's a picture I'm like shaking hands and running for office and trying to make cocktail party conversation. Yeah. And I'm like, this is not for me. Instead, if I go to things like that, what I think about is how can I help? Can I make a deposit in the group bank account? Connect two people up give perspective or just be like, yeah, yeah, that's normal. You know, at your, at your new promotion, that level, of course you feel like you're an imposter. Guess what? The best people feel like imposters. The people who don't feel like imposters are sociopaths. Don't worry. You know, you're not alone. So when I think about building trust, I mean, like help people like, ah, okay, man, I can fix this bug for you and cookies. Yes. Yeah. Well, when I come into a new group, I mean, my job is to help us be as awesome as we can be in all ways. And if the thing that's annoying everybody is the recycle bins not getting emptied, I'll empty the recycle bin. Like really small things and particularly manual labor, I think they go a long way. And it also shows that like nothing, like I'm not an aristocrat, nothing's beneath me. And I'm not taking the coolest, most exciting projects on, right? I am filling in the cracks. Exactly. That you're mentioning emptying the recycle bins, pretty much looking out for What's bugging people? What do people tend to complain about? It can also be beneficial even in the software development sense where people are like, ah, oh, our build is always too slow. Right. There's that one document we can never keep updated. Yeah. And you have that antenna up and you're like, well, I'm going to change it, even though it's not in the backlog or anything, just add value and keep things going better within the team. Yeah. And when you're a manager, I mean, you get amplification from that. So I kind of have this philosophy of how do I get scale? If I just do like learn something for myself, that's really limited. So I really try to also synthesize like thing. What I know, I want my team to know. It might not be exactly at the same time. It might not be at the same level of fidelity. Right. And so like, why would I do a write up, you know, and just share it with two people when I could share it with 250? Yeah, I think that's right. And also you kind of get your having multiple pulse signals is also good. Like here's another example, right? I stock the women's bathroom and we go buy supplies and the men's bathroom does. So we get a lot of guests, by the way, coming by Building 6 because we have like hair care products. And if you need emergency deodorant, stain remover, it's, I mean, shampoo, Q-tips, even some perfume. Like we got it. Fancy hand soap. So I don't have that industrial like 
skin dissolving gunk hand lotion this time of year. And it's such a small thing. It's actually easy, right? And it just has multiple benefits. I mean, I care. Where I spend my time and my money and, right? And my effort is what I care about. Um, it gets guests coming by. Turns out people like to come over to Building Sex. We've actually hired some folks that we met because they were like in the women's bathroom or the men's bathroom. And we started talking to them. And we're like, oh, my God, you're awesome. We're hiring. It's a honey trap. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about building teams analogous to civilizations. Can you explain this? Okay, yeah. I mean, that sounds really smart, doesn't it? And I realize I don't have an easy explanation. Well, I love history. And I think about ancient Egypt. I remember when we were all scared about the year 2000 problem in the United States, Egypt was joking, well, we're worried about the year 7000 problem. I mean, the great pyramids, the language, the technology, and to do this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So for that to happen, it has to be a group and a group DNA that is programming itself or organizational machine learning. So what are the rules, right? If you've ever you know, played games where, or economic things where they go off the rails, means the rules are wrong, right? So I think about that. Like, I mean, this is, if I'm doing something amazing and world-changing, I can't do it on my own. It is beyond my lifespan, right? And if it was amazing for four years and it goes away, then it was a fad and not amazing. So like, how do we go the distance? How do we give people opportunity? What are the rules of how we work together? If the rules are bad or the algorithm is bad, right? Like, how can the result be good? or sustainably good. So I don't worry so much anymore about a particular bug. I mean, unless it's really, hey, you know, it will cause a lawsuit or somebody will have to stay up for 60 hours straight, right? Like I would never let someone on our team go off a cliff. But, you know, if people can explain their reasoning and we're clear on how, you know, we'll recover. First of all, it's really great learning for people. And I'd say maybe 50% of the time my old crusty, you know, pattern matching was right. And 50% of the time it's not. So I learned stuff. I'm like, oh, I never thought this would work. You know, this was better than my thought. Um, so really the keeping the rules healthy. It's also how you get 250 or more people's worth of result. Usually without good rules, good civilizations, you get less than the sum. There's just taxes and overhead in all kinds of ways right? I mean, anybody lives in Seattle and just deals with traffic, you're just like, why would the city have put a streetcar in, right? So it's one part because this is a people endeavor. It's by people for people to solve people problems. Uh, one part because this is our work home, right? The human beings and the team spend the majority of their waking hours here to be meaningful, uh, useful, and hopefully mostly fun, right? <laughs> and if those things are good, like it will grow itself and sustain itself at a rate that I could never do, right? Like I, if it was linear effort on my part, it won't go. Exactly. And just to expand on this, it will grow and sustain itself. Managers and leaders leave teams at some points. You've done it. I've done it. When this happened, one of the things you've said in the past is the team should be able to continue to grow and keep doing cool, interesting stuff. What are some of the things that you can do as a leader to make sure that when you leave, the team will be fine? Well, and I mean, I'm a human being. Like, I would want people to cry a little bit, but then have kind of a New Orleans-style funeral yeah. with some dancing after. But, you know, I want people to be a little sad. Writing stuff down. I mean, one of the reasons I love OneNote, right? Hey, all of this context and info makes it a lot easier for someone new coming in. Sounds obvious, right? And also a place where they can go to. I think if I'm leaving... A current thing. It is my first responsibility to make sure the transition is smooth, like the team comes first, right? 
and then I worry about myself. And maybe, you know, it, it maybe I've it's impacted my career at various points, but guess what? I'd rather sleep well than worry about that. It's hard because sometimes it's hard to let go. So you have to find that right moment of where it's painful for you to retreat. But the most obvious thing is like delegate. Like, I mean, if I'm the most smartest person in the room or like the most important person on the critical path, we are in trouble. We are in huge trouble if that's the case, because I do not own my calendar. As you advance in your career, you think you have more control over stuff. Yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> I have zero control over time. I mean, Satya is not going to re, you know, reschedule a meeting because I wanted an hour to, to do some work. Not going to happen, right? So I just, I can't make our team block. And I think there's an art to delegation. You know, I try not to delegate like just stupid pass through ugly things. Um, that said, I, I have a tendency to hang on to stuff that I think is a mess. It's a bad habit. And every time I get reminded that there's probably somebody on the team, if you have more than 100 people, for whom this would be a dream project and they get a moment to shine. Right. So delegation and also being intentional about it. I mean, succession planning. And if you cascade that down your group, right, you have a bench and then, like, let's say, like, the team grows. It's not even me leaving. Let's say the team grows. Okay, who's our next gem, our next group engineering manager? Oh, we already have somebody, right? We have, like, an experienced engineering manager lieutenant who's been shadowing one of the other gems and so on. And I think when you kind of make your leaders realize that they, the only way they get to do more is through that, you know, like the rising tide lifts the boat. It's usually good. And the mark of bad leaders is where they just refuse. It's just hard for them to let anybody else shine or they just can't let go of the small stuff. It doesn't mean, I mean, there's a tension between that and being a craftsman for sure. You also like to bring humor to the workplace. In what ways does this help how the team works? Well, we should also be clear that like there are ways in which it doesn't work and there are people for whom it doesn't work. Exactly. There are groups that love being very logical and cool and, and that's fine too, right? It's not an ethical right or wrong. Well, I hope, this is what I hope. First of all, if I make stupid jokes, it just relaxes everybody. Anybody else can say something, you know, make a stupid joke and not worry that like, oh my God. You know, the manager said something is going to think I'm stupid or report me or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So just relaxing. I also think in times of stress, you know, fight or flight, which often happen at the end of a long product engineering cycle and you just have this list of bugs and you've lost perspective, that's exactly the most dangerous time, like going too fast and not thinking. So make people laugh. I think it releases tension and then it kind of like puts your puts folks back in a more thoughtful, like less hyper-stressed place. And also, I mean, things just go wrong. It's job security, right? So to put it in perspective, I mean, we have free soda. We have people who clean our buildings for us. We have health insurance, right? We have savings plans. We get paid a good salary. And that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, people in the software industry don't have real human problems too. But my God, this is not like children starving in Yemen, right? So perspective. And the, I think the last thing that I also really believe is that the things that are funniest are true and the things that are truest can be very funny. But truth, when it's sort of said with a front, like I don't like being lectured at, right? You just make me feel like a bad person because I should floss my teeth. It backs me in a corner and then I just want to like, you know, I think you can deliver truth in ways that are, that get swallowed with sugar around it and that isn't hurtful by making a joke, right? Or, and it takes practice. You know, like you go into a meeting, let's say with a customer, and they don't know that the head of the group is, that L. Butler is a woman, 
right? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, hey, can you get me a coffee? Well, what do you do? You could sit there and go, like, you could make the person feel terrible. And by the way, I have am guilty of these things too, right? Yeah. Oh, you're tall. You must like basketball, right? Yeah. Or you can kind of put them at ease, but also sort of teach a little lesson. and be like, oh, you're getting coffee? I would love a venti a skinny mocha if they have it. Hi, I'm Laura Butler. I run Notes and Tasks. Yeah. I'm not always great at it. And I think also when it's funny, you feel better. I mean, they've studies, right? If you smile, you'll have more wrinkles, but you'll feel better, right? So that, that, I guess that would be the theory of the humor. I mean, life is funny. It just is. And it's supposed, this most of what we're doing is supposed to be fun. I mean, if it's really not fun for a really long time, it's the wrong thing. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. The other thing that I like that you've mentioned before is this idea of power can be acquired, it's not given. Can you explain this particularly for the context of, you know, you're an early employee. How can you acquire power? Okay, yeah. Well, so there's a book, I think it's called Turn the Ship Around by David Marquardt, who was a nuclear submarine captain. And he says something, first of all, you can't be empowered past a certain point. By definition, if the only way you get power is someone gives it to you, like it doesn't work, right? Well, I think, I always think of what is power for, right? Or what is it about? And it looks a lot like leadership. Hey, I have influence. Hey, I am known as a subject matter expert, right? So people come to me. I am someone people would turn to in a time of crisis because I am trustworthy. I am known, I'm an ethical conscience of the team. You know, I will always raise my hand if like something is not right. This doesn't pass a pride, sniff test pride in the sense of if this were public, would we be able to defend it and look people in the eye? Power is definitely not getting to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and not having to explain it. If that were the definition, I would be the least powerful person on my team. (laughs) So in terms of how to get, it is funny, like authority, really just acting like you're an authority is truthfully half of it. Like Animal Planet, highly recommend people watch Animal Planet. And hacking, if you look at the history of hacking, and social hacking is still the most powerful hacking there is, right? I look like a harmless five-foot-tall girl. I look like the person you'd ask to watch your house. You were, you know, a neighbor and you had to be out of town for a bit. Trust me not to, you know, steal your stuff and the house won't burn down. If I, with this, put on a lab coat and a clipboard, I could get, like, private information about, like, anybody, right? Hey, hi, I'm Laura. I'm here from the Neighborhood Watch. Can, hey, what's your social security number, right? Yeah. But I, there's also something about having belief. So you have to kind of believe in yourself. So what are things people can do? Well, first of all, just practice and demonstrate your integrity, right? Be a person of your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it and report on how it's going. It will not always go perfect. You may not get to it, in which case you should report on that too. Like if you wait way too long, you know, then you you just don't become trustworthy. And you don't get the right to go do fun other cool stuff if you don't follow through on the things that you have. And that gives you power because who's going to bet on somebody who's a flake, right? So I think about that. Truthfully, like cookies and snacks in your office are this really like weird guys. Okay, I know that's grossly sexist. Many, many men at Microsoft don't get what a powerful thing that it is. And it looks reverse powerful. Hey, I've got a warm, welcoming corner with some cookies and some tea. It looks like a therapy office. You know, oh, nice teacher mom. Those people don't have power. Ha! Guess what? If you have snacks or cookies, people come to you. You will know what's going on. Information is power. You want to know what's going on. You want people to stop by. And when they stop by, they'll probably ask you some questions. You'll have good conversations. You know, be the person where the food is or be near the food. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think also practicing sales, and it's going to sound like kind of sleazy, but well, sales and collaboration. 
what are the best partnerships? It's where both people win. Okay. So get out of the win-lose mindset. If you're conquered, what incentive do you have to just roll over and stay accepting conquering? None. And I think we tend to do that a lot in the tech industry. It's like, you will bow down to my will and you will replace your tab with four spaces, right? Yeah. And and first of all, like, who cares? But anyhow, um, so find the win-win, right? Those are stable, healthy partnerships. So spending time to figure out what does the other party or person care about? Like, what are their priorities? And then understanding a bit about, like, what their world is like. Maybe that's why they can't get to the thing you would like them to do right now. And then finding, like, doing a merge, doing an intersection. Like, I've got this grand idea, and if I know the other person and I believe that this is good for that, would be good for them and their priorities and what they want to do, then it's just a question of when. So instead of, like, leading with the we need to do this yesterday, be like, hey, I've got this idea, and I think it's really, it's great for me, but I think it's good for you. Instead of it would be really awesome for me if you would just do whatever I say, right? That takes time. So I'd say the single biggest source of power I have is about 10,000 micro investments in people at Microsoft, you know, indirectly through a plate of cookies from a saying hello in the hallway to meeting someone and then later, you know, having a podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. So that, it doesn't always have to be in the front. But I also think if people know you're really stubborn, that can help too. You know, you're like, oh, she's just not going to give on this, so I should just cave. <laughs> Those things will bite you later. Yeah, I think finding the will. So being able to sell your ideas to people, why would they buy them? So I, I want to say, is it Dale Carnegie? And that is what collaboration is. Dale Carnegie. And you also, everyone has to know what you stand for. If I don't really know what you care about or where you're going to be upset, I don't really know how to partner with you really well, right? So integrity and consistency come in. Dale Carnegie's book, is it How to Win, win friends. friends and Influence? Yeah. Like very, very useful for engineering, just like Animal Planet. I'll include those in the show notes. Also bright lipstick. Here's a trip or bright fingernail polish. I mean, first it puts me in the zone, like if I'm going to go get up in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. But if I want to be seen, and I'm not going to go play like power pose games or be late, but bright colors, they make you feel better, they work. But if you want to be like the secret power behind the scenes, you know, like neutral colors. And then Yeah, that's another thing I heard you mention in this talk. The way you dress is important, even when people try to tell you, nah, it doesn't really matter. To some extent, it does. Well, I think if it's it, like acting, it, whatever props or thing gets you in a good place, like if it's your lucky lavender, you know, aromatherapy thing, great. Yeah. And I mean, it's true. And I, I guess I should, feel, I probably should feel worse about this than I do. But there are times when I wear a dress on purpose. I have a, had a lucky pink sweater when I was in Windows. And when I put this lucky pink sweater on, I'm like, and prepared to cry. I'm like, I'm going to get what I want, right? But it, I also didn't put it on very often, you know, so I didn't wear it out. But then everyone knows it's your lucky pink sweater and you mean business. Yeah. So, so it's the causality, you know, of it versus the correlation isn't always clear. Nice. Before we finish, I just want to ask you, in the early days of your career, you avoided all women events. Me too, to some extent. Then I started attending them. I'm curious, what was your reason for avoiding these kind of events? Oh, it was not a good reason, but I'm going to be honest. Well, looking back now, I would say such a sign of insecurity and minority think. Because I was a real programmer. I was good. And Like those other people, like, oh, they're talking about like fashion. And I think also, you know, I wasn't popular in school. So I had this kind of like, oh, mean girl, I don't want to. But really, if you think about what I just said, it tells you, first of all, like, here's a sign of minority think. The pie is fixed. 
So if there's more of us, we each get less of a slice, as opposed to we actually can create more pie and maybe even some cake, right, together. I think also the sense of community. Like, guess what? It's just one of many communities. I mean, here would be my test. If I happen to, like, be a football fan and because I was a foot, like, and I had tickets and I got invited to, like, hang out with Pete Carroll, like, I would be like, oh, hell yeah, right? I wouldn't sit there and go, oh, well, this is only happening because, like, I'm a football fan. I wouldn't think about it. We have multiple communities. Not any one of them define any of us. More is better, right? Now I just have a time problem where it seems like any event is just always like scheduled at the wrong time. And uh, that is what it is. Exactly. Like you said earlier, you have no control of your calendar at this point. I don't. I mean, I should be better. I always, okay, this is not like great executive maturity, but what happens is I'm like, I want to help people and I can feel good. And then I overbook myself and then I feel sorry for myself. So having fabulous colleagues like my chief of staff, business manager, Kathleen Vilchez, and my exec admin, Angela Schnell, is so incredibly helpful because they know me better than I know myself. And they tell me to my face, like, you just said you need four out, like, you can't say yes to this nonsense. Trying to, you know, manage priorities of time. And I feel bad about it. My least favorite time of the year is intern week here at Microsoft because so many people and women come from all over, you know, the world to be here. And I get like, and I'm not that popular. I can't even imagine like Amy Hood, like a hundred requests in one week to have 30 minute one-on-one -on -one. and people will just book them. I'm like that's 50 hours one week and I can't do it. Right. So really having good people around you that like just make you better is super helpful. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great. Oh, thanks. I've, thank you for letting me ramble. I have so many questions for you, but I didn't want to like, you know, Shanghai your oh, podcast. Maybe we could do a follow-up or a, yeah. like an outtakes one where I get to interview you. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Adina. Thanks, Adina.